Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Happy December, everyone. I hope your month is off to a great start. Good time to plan rifle deer hunting and other opportunities to go to the field. It is going to be prime time for fly fishing pending. It's not ridiculously cold, but it's a good time. The hatches should have largely transpired and fish should be rising, especially the trout. So I'm going to do my hand at both this month. That's my goal. And I hope you have your plans settled as well. We have Travis Thompson, co-host of the Cast and Blast Florida podcast, rejoining us. Travis is also a waterfall guide in Florida. He attended the summit on behalf of Delta Waterfowl and is an avid duck hunter and conservationist. Waterfall and other opportunities. He is a very reputable stakeholder in conservation, and he is going to break down a couple things for us today. One, he is going to go over the recent NASC summit that happened in Bozeman, Montana, that was put on, it is put on rather, annually by the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Travis attended and will give us an insider's look into the 19th annual summit there. Important takeaways from the summit, and he even encouraged me to attend. I should at some point, and I hope I can next year. He's also going to talk about some policies that are on his mind and top it off with duck ranching, something that he and other Floridians, some of whom we have interviewed for Conservation Nation and also on this podcast, what they're doing to open up their private properties, their ranches in particular, to new hunters to learn about waterfalling. So it's good to be rejoined by Travis. Glad he returned safely from Montana. It was very frigid from what I saw with a good feeling about the future of conservation. And here's Travis Thompson of Cast and Blast Florida. I am really excited to have Travis Thompson, co-host of the Cast and Blast podcast, friend of the show, back on the podcast today to give us a brief overview about the recent uh, Sportsman's Caucus. Well, they have a formal title and Travis can go more into detail, but it's a caucus conference hosted by the uh, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. It was held in Bozeman, Montana. He's going to give us an overview He'll talk about some policies that are on his mind as it relates to conservation and talk about duck ranching. I think you guys will really enjoy these topics. So Travis, thank you again for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me again, Gabby. I think we've traded hosting like, like co-hosting or being interviewed on each other's show two or three times each now. So it's always, it's, it's fun. I love the Florida perspective too. And we talk so often about policy and I figure like, since you were at this summit recently, you give us a good overview and you always have a unique take on things that are trending. So it was your first time to Montana, if I understood it correctly. 
Yeah, I I think I've been to 41 or 42 states and Montana I've never set foot in. So that was it's a beautiful state. I can see why so many people love it, why people fall in love with it. Um we were in Bozeman for the first annual or I'm sorry, not not the first, my first. The I think it's the 19th annual NASC Summit, so it's the North American Sportsmen's Caucus and or National Association of Sportsmen's Caucuses, which is every state has a state sportsmen's caucus now they just signed hawaii this last couple of weeks or month um so 50 states now have sportsmen's caucuses in their state legislature there's a national sportsmen's caucus and then there's a governor's sportsmen's caucus um so there's csf kind of i don't want to speak for them because i know you've had some of those guys on the show before and they're a fantastic organization but they kind of assimilate all that stuff together get those guys together and they do this big summit annually uh, to kind of bring people and I, I would say thought leaders in the conservation legislative space from around the world or yeah, around the world together to uh, kind of talk about issues and what they see. And I, I, it was a fantastic conference. What were your top takeaways from the summit? What were they really honing in on? You posted some previews of interesting sessions that transpired, but what was your, I would say top three, four takeaways that you really enjoyed or appreciated? Um, I don't want to go too deep too fast, but I will say, that we all have similar problems, even if we have different uh, ecosystems. So, so there was a lot of discussion around predator management in the Pacific Northwest um, or the, or the West, you know, the stuff you've talked about Gab, uh, the first time I ever heard the greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bears discussion was on your podcast on district conservation, Um, the wolves and, and wolf management and how those impact ranchers, how the population has grown, how they're managing that. And then I look at that stuff and I can juxtapose it with stuff that I see in the East through things like uh, black bears in Florida and, and the way we manage them. And so I kind of walk out, walked out of that and my, my wife went with me. She didn't go to the conference. She was out there with me and we were discussing it, kind of debriefing at the end of one of the days. And I said, you know, to me, a lot of these conversations are less partisan, but more political depending on where you are, they're, they're not so much, we tend to think in terms of there's one party for sportsmen, but in reality, when I look at things through the lens of the Southeast or through Florida, um, it's not always as black and white as we maybe think it is nationally from a partisanship standpoint, but it's very definitely a political um, thing. So I just, I was, I was taken away. I, what my takeaway was there's a lot of folks around the country that have similar problems, even though they have different names to them. And, um, that there's a lot of folks around the country. It gives me great hope when I see all of, and these are friends of mine and yours, Gabby, Cyrus Spirit and John Devney from Delta and, and uh, B. Frederick, the, all the guys from Safari Club International. And um, I know I'm going to leave somebody out, Ducks Unlimited. And you see these groups and you see them fighting so hard and advocating so hard and doing it in such a, a good way. The national, a lot of the national wildlife federation groups, like friends of mine, and your, like Bill Cooksey or Jesse Dubel or some of those guys, man, to see all those people kind of come together and they sit in a room and they, they break bread, they have conversations and they just talk and talk and talk. And these are all people that are consumed with conservation. That gives me hope. Um, so those were my two big kind of takeaways. I, I will tell you, they packed a ton into that summit in, in two, we started, we, we had a reception the opening night at Sims Fly Fishing Headquarters. And that was, a, that was really cool. We got to see where they hand make the waiters here in the United States. And then the next day they started with a breakfast at seven and we ended around nine that night. And then the next day they started with a breakfast at seven and we ended around nine that night. So it was two packed days, um, just wall to wall with information. 
which lawmakers kind of interested you or you got more curious to learn about which of the governor state lawmakers were any impressionable? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. So, so governor Gianforte came, um, and it really, I, I don't know much about him. I, I'm, I, it's no secret to you, but to your listeners, I don't know who knows me or doesn't. I'm a pretty Florida focused guy. Like we have 21 and a half million people, um, from a hunting and fishing conservation standpoint, it's a, I, every day I get up, eat my, my Wheaties and we go fight about stuff. So, I don't know much about Governor Gianforte other than he's a Republican governor of Montana. But he said st- he said up there first he was very engaging, he's very personable, very warm. I, my impression, again, this is a 20-30 minute conversation. But what struck me was when he talked about his priorities, the first thing he talked about was the economy and how, you know, if you if you're in the room and you're multi-generation Montanan and your kids have gone to college, they probably don't live in the state anymore because there were no jobs. And it's a state with a million people, huge landmass. Absolutely. I see a lot of room to run there. Like that, that makes complete sense to me as a, as a conservative and that and he's in, he's in the tech space, a lot of opportunities there. But then he said his second priority is the Montana way of life, protecting the Montana way of life, hunting, fishing, hiking, skiing, backpacking, camping, stargazing, the things that make Montana unique. He was very passionate about that impressed the heck out of me as a guy that sits in a state where we talk economy, 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 economy. And it seems like we kind of cast by the wayside, all the stuff that really makes me love Florida and makes a million people a year want to move here or 300,000 people a year want to move here. So he, he really stood out to me. I was really impressed with him. Um, A lot of state legislators there. And I will tell you, they're not my state, but Jeff Spiegelman from Delaware stood out to me. Um, both because he was very candid, very off the cuff, very, very, I'll say quick-witted, but also um, really seemed to get the idea of how to work across the aisle on conservation issues, on climate issues, but also he's a conservative that has seemingly to me strong conservative roots. Um, I was really impressed with uh, uh, Representative White from from South Carolina, uh, who's no longer, I think he lost his election this last go-round. He was really a, an impressive, genuine guy um, talking about stuff. I, I could go, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Gabs. I met so many legislators from so many states, none from Florida. There were none from Florida there. But I met so many legislators from so many states. It gave me hope to say, you know, we've got some folks like this. We just got to go find them. And B, um, it made me feel pretty good as a sportsman about our country's future for sportsmen. That's encouraging because we've talked a lot about you know, kind of disconcerting things federally, statewide. And it seems, I mean, on the media side, it seems like preservationists are winning somewhat because they're making gains. They have some allies in the federal government, unfortunately. And you see kind of mixed messaging about where the sportsmen are. And certainly among different states, I know in your state, you guys have challenges sometimes with a friendly administration to enact conservation policy. But it seems like, like you said, I think people can come together. They break bread. They do want to fight for these issues. And sometimes you have to face extreme elements on either side. Uh, that could be, you know, obstacles to true conservation. Was there any discussion about legislation that they want to see passed in the upcoming cycle or Congress session with the new makeup? Um, what are kind of some of their legislative priorities? Some things to me don't seem like they could pass. Some things could pass, but was there any discussion of that? Well, so, so most of the folks in these rooms are state legislators. So a lot of this was aimed at how each individual state is handling um, their 
I'll say issues. I don't think that's really a fair term for it, but I'm going to say it because I'm not that smart, but how each individual state handles their issues. So how Montana is handling wolves or how Oregon's handling bears or New Jersey's handling bears now, or, um, you know, so there was a lot of discussion at the state level because the majority of the room is state lawmakers. Um, but then the fed on the federal side, you know, we're coming up on farm bill reauthorization in 2023. And so, a lot of discussion around that, which I think is as a sportsman, I know this has been a thing. I know that like John Devney and, and uh, Kent, and I can't think of his last name from, from congressional sportsman's foundation. Those guys have been on top of farm bill stuff for a long time, but as someone now, and we're going to talk about duck ranching a little bit later in this, in this conversation, as we look through the lens of conservation and where sportsmen can play in conservation, I think the farm bill is something that we've kind of not paid enough attention to over the years. And I think federally that's going to be a big thing for, I mean, it's always been a big thing for us. I just don't think outside the beltway, outside the insiders, we've really understood how important that is to um, hunting and fishing and water quality and conservation at a national scale. So a lot of farm bill discussion, obviously on the eve of farm bill reauthorization, you know, next, next session, um, and, I, you know, that's that's the program that gives us NRCS. It gives us CRP. It gives us VPA HIP. It gives us um, so WRP or WRE. Um, it, it gives us a lot of opportunities for uh, for conservation and hopefully access into some of those conservation opportunities that I, I, I feel like it's a thing that I've been naive about in the past. It gets reauthorized every five years. And um, a lot of chatter about that, a lot of discussion about that, because it's a thing where you have this federal pot of money. And then states can go and I'm oversimplifying it a little bit here, but states can go and get some of that pot of money for the farmers, ranchers in their states and or the programs in their states that kind of funnel into the farm bill. Yeah. And I admit that I am not extremely knowledgeable about the farm bill myself. I know my friends in ag policy tend to know the specifics better, but when you posted that screenshot, I was surprised to see that even fishing, recreational fishing has to do with it a little bit as well. So it's an educational opportunity for sure. And I've always been a little bit like, Oh, miffed about, you know, more government spending. And I hope um, it is stewarded well. And I think in these programs it is, but there are other aspects I think of the farm bill that are not stewarded properly, but I know the conservation components tend to be fairly okay. I think most people like them, but I'm kind of ambivalent about it because I don't know too much about the stipulations as much as I should. But general impressions of Montana, because I had seen you and Bill Cooksey post something really funny. I don't remember this when I was traveling there last summer and this past summer with Madison, who you know as well, our videographer for Conservation Nation. But you guys were lamenting the fact that there was no coffee shop opened at 6 a.m. And what other quirks about Montana kind of left you guys that kind of impression? I'm a duck hunter, you know, I'm, I'm having my first cup of coffee every morning about three o'clock. And so I, I make my own obviously, but generally speaking, if you can't get your own, you can swing through a gas station, but um, there was just nothing. So we were in Bozeman and I, I will like to say a lot of people said, Oh, Bozeman's not Montana. And I did not, I was not aware. They call we, it Bo's Angeles. Yeah. But I was not aware that we could just lop cities off from States because I have a list of Florida cities. I would like to lop off <laughs> Miami for a lot like, by the time I get done lopping everything off, we'll be down to like three counties. Um, so I wasn't aware that we got to play that game where we just lop stuff off. And I very I'll, candidly, Gabby, I loved Bozeman. I thought it was a cool, it's a cool town, actually. Yeah. I know people rag on it, but I like it. I'll tell you what. So my hometown, 
in Florida is the 77th largest town in Florida is Winter Haven. No one's ever heard of it. It's where Legoland is. Um, Bozeman is the fourth largest town in Montana, and they are the exact same size. They're within 1,000 people of each other, like 53,000, 54,000. And it's pervasive to me walking around that town. You've got Schnee's downtown. You've got fly shops. You've got outfitters. Like... I, we, my, my wife and I walked into a little boutique shop looking for a t-shirt for, for a friend and they had hunt Montana shirts in this little boutique. Like in, in my mind, it was like just a little local girl shop. I hate to be reductive about it, but that's kind of what it struck me as. And it had a shirt in there that said hunt Montana with ducks on it. The, the idea of hunting, fishing, being outdoors seems pervasive through that town. And so you can call it Bose Angeles if you want, but that tells me you haven't spent much time in Los Angeles. Because none of right. those fly there. Nope. <laughs> I, live, I live down here in the reddest state in the country at this point, And none of that stuff would fly in my town in the exact same size town. And no one would call this Winter Haven Angeles. Like it's, it's so it's just, it's really kind of stark to me that maybe don't take what you got for granted, Montana, because um, that's a pretty, yeah, you probably don't politically agree on everything. And I'm sure there's some, you know, some tree huggers out there that don't want you to take a grizzly bear or don't want you to kill a wolf or whatever. But at the same time, like the pervasiveness of, you said it earlier, the idea of conservation versus preservation. I was struck by that at this conference. Every speaker, I felt like they wanted to make sure that people understood there was a difference there. In Florida, from an agency standpoint, from an NGO standpoint, from a uh, politician standpoint, we use the term preservation very much interchangeably with conservation in we know the definition of both terms. If if you if you get my drift, like we are doing preservation, oftentimes um, folks are never going to set foot on a lot of land that we are quote unquote conserving. And I wish we kind of looked at it through the lens of preservation is for delicious jams and jellies and conservation is for wildlife. Um, so I felt like that was a, a pervasive thing in Montana and people understood that. You know, every Uber we got in, we get into an Uber and uh, I think we took four while we were out there and every one of those guys hunted. They brought That's up, awesome. oh, I went hunting elk the other day or I went hunting grouse the other day. I'm like, dude, you know how many Ubers you'd have to go through in my town to get to somebody that hunted? I, I don't know that you would. I don't know that you ever would. So just um, different culture, different world. And th- that was kind of, to me, it's a takeaway of a thing that I don't look at it as a defeatist. I look at it as an opportunity. Like I live in a natural wonderland. Like Florida's beautiful. You've been here before. We have gorgeous coastlines with incredible fishing. We have great inland fishing in our freshwaters. We have incredible hunting if you choose to get out there and sweat and get after it. Um, people come from all over the world. I've had clients this year come from Mexico, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Oregon to hunt ducks with us. Um, the Osceola turkey is only found here. This this stuff exists in Florida that we need to celebrate more. And I I view it as an as an opportunity for us to become more pervasive down here in the way we talk about it, and in the acceptance of consumptive use or utilitarian use of wildlife. Um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity ahead of us. I want to see the same in Virginia too. We don't have a problem with the sporting heritage, but I would love to see a lot more of it. I think the tourism website has like links to lodges, links to outfitting businesses, but it's not as celebrated like it is in Montana. I totally agree. Maybe it's an East versus West thing because people actively go to those places because they advertise fishing and hunting opportunities. And I think on the East coast, people associate our States, even though Virginia is a lot smaller, we're kind of semi-urban. We're not really overly developed. We have a 
pretty big population. It's densely populated, but we don't have like skyscrapers to the nth degree. Um, and our density is not like Florida's in a sense where we're a fraction of the size. But I think um, because we have that urban versus rural suburban sprawl division sometimes, I think that's why it's not made not been made more. And also we had two governors who were not sportsmen for the last eight years. So I think we're, or I think the new administration's trying to come in if they have an interest. I have to ask my governor at some point about that. He does want to sit down with me and, and discuss that. And he is a new member of the governor's caucus, sportsman caucus too. Um, so I think different states have the capability of doing it. I wish Florida did that too. Um, but maybe it's like a East versus West thing where they just don't see it as like a draw or they maybe just establish their outdoor recreation, um, economic outfits, because I know each state now has something to tie in the economy and growth with promoting outdoor recreation, but I don't think they utilize it in many States across the East yet. I, I was so struck by Gianforte, governor Gianforte saying he wants to protect the Montana way of life. Like to me, you could have knocked me over because obviously Governor DeSantis, very popular governor, um, both nationally and in state, a 60-40 governor win. That, I mean, that's incredible in a state that 15 minutes ago was very much a swing state. But I cannot him, I, I can't imagine him standing up and saying, I want to protect the Floridian way of life. And I, that bothers me a little bit somewhere deep inside of me. I don't mean that as a criticism so much as an opportunity, again, um, because I just feel like there is a chance there. If you look at bears, you know, we didn't intend to go down this way, but Oregon's having all kinds of problems with their commission, the way it's appointed and the representation on the bear hunt. They shut down the bear hunt. Like it's just been a whole, a whole debacle out there. And then you've talked about the New Jersey stuff that's gone on recently where the governor there, a Democrat governor ran on a platform of basically one of his tent poles was I'm going to end the bear hunt. And now here we are four years later, not even. And he has commissioned to turn the bear hunt back on. Now it got an injunction last week. Yep. They turned it off again, but the governor who ran on the platform of shutting it down, a Democrat governor um, actually said, we need to turn it back on because we're having so many human bear interactions. And then juxtapose that with Florida, where we have the most popular Republican governor in the country. And we can't even talk about bear hunts. And I, I'm not a bear hunter. I, I just want to be clear. I'm, I'm not a bear hunter at all. I'm just saying it's very interesting to me that we love to talk about the, wor the world of conservation and the North American model. And bears, we have 4,000 of them. We have more now than we have at any point since Hernando de Soto. 4,000 is probably low. The, the estimate is four to 6,000. Um, any point since Hernando de Soto set foot on our state, we have more bears and we have 21 and a half million people here. So human inter bear interactions are up. We spend a lot of money on bear proofing and bear education and all this other jazz. But because politically there's no votes in turning on a bear hunt, um, we're we're not really interested in having that conversation. I just think it's very stark when you look around the country. Most popular Republican governor in the country, we can't have a bear hunt. A Democrat that ran on ending bear hunts is trying to turn a bear hunt back on. And those are really stark things that maybe don't get discussed very often. And I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I'm, I, I'm puzzled by it. I'm not sure many people are paying attention to it. Yeah, you follow that conversation and that topic really closely. One immediate solution I can recommend, you need to partner with my friends at the American Bear Foundation. They used to be the Western Bear Foundation. Maybe talk to Joe Candelas and have him like come with his team and he can maybe pressure um, the bear conversation. Also, remember Missouri just passed a bear hunt. There was a lot of commotion about that, and they were refusing to pass it for a long time, too, despite having a healthy population. I have some lawmaker contacts in Missouri. Maybe you can talk to them about 
how to nefangle uh, that kind of issue, approach the subject, because they were able to force the game commission to pass a season, even though there was opposition from the usual suspects, Humane Society, et cetera, saying it's a trophy hunt. So I will help you immediately with those connections if you need them, and maybe a pressure campaign can be mounted. Then it's not going to be hostile, but these people can help you and say, hey, from our examples, we just passed this. We can help you navigate this. So I think there are people who would like to see it um, and maybe just... I don't know why in Florida it's not an issue. Um, we've talked about it offline, of course, and we don't need to bring that here. Um, but you guys can make it an issue. And I think if you have other good interest groups help your people who've successfully passed it, despite even having these challenges too in red states, I think that can make a convincing case to the governor. I hope so. I want to be optimistic. Um, but you guys shouldn't already have, or you guys should already have a season. It doesn't make any sense if the population is already healthy. Um, it's reached its carrying capacity. It, it absolutely, I mean, we have 20,000 bears in Virginia. We're not going to see that go away anytime soon. They may alter the hunting season because of mange and some other problems that have been introduced in recent years. But um, no, absolutely. got to follow the science, um, <laughs> whether you're a Democrat or Republican. I, I think that's a troubling thing. Like, so social science has really crept onto the scene in wildlife management heavily. And I don't think social yes. is a bad thing at all. Um, but I think misapplication of social science can really turn almost into polling and governance by popular opinion of what does what do the majority of people want? They don't, you know, Florida's got a billion sandhill cranes down here. We can't even broach that conversation. Um, bears is is another one. It's a, it's so bears is a good one because of the avatar that it is. But at the end of the day, I, I don't know that we should or should not have a bear hunt. I definitely think that conversation should be borne out though with science leading the charge. Not do people want people to hunt bears or not because of the charismatic megafauna labels or whatever. And I really feel like um, for us down here, that's a, that's a voice that is missing um, either. I don't know if it's legislatively, I don't know if it's in the governor's office. I don't really know where it is, but it doesn't seem like that message quite gets through. It's more of, well, what's going to be the most popular political decision on these things. And let's go kind of that direction. And uh, that's troubling. And I, I, I say this all the time, and you and I have talked about this offline, Gabby. I, f I feel like Florida's a little bit of the canary in the coal mine for that. You know, you came from Gal California where you know a lot of what's happened out there. I think Florida's a little bit of the canary in the coal mine because, um, again, take party out of this. I feel like we are leaning more and more towards a mutualistic view of wildlife ecology as versus a utilitarian use uh, or conservation use in my mind. Um where if you have enough of this resource, you should be able to take it or even go back to the North American model. Like we, when deer and turkeys and things like that were low, they never shut them off entirely. Maybe they did in an area, but they kept an, they kept a reason for people to want to keep turkeys on the landscape or a reason for people to want to keep deer on the landscape by allowing a hunting season tightly regulated. But that's how a lot of those species ended up making the recoveries that they made. And so I just, I, I feel like it's a conversation that's going to need to occur a lot in the next couple of years. Um, not just in Florida, but as as kind of some of these platforms move nationally, and um, and we, I, I just I'm I'm concerned that we are seeing that shift. I think we've seen it in Oregon as well. Um, one of the speakers from Oregon talked about the biggest problem they have out there with wildlife management is social science, and I like want to stand up and clap again, not because I'm anti-social science, but because I think it gets misused and abused, <laughs> oftentimes in wildlife management. Did they discuss by chance? several of these emerging groups to that have a desire to remake state wildlife agencies and move them away from the North American model, because that's been a discussion. I think we had heard and discussed about uh, the wildlife society conference in Spokane. I brought Brian from sportsman's Alliance on to talk about that. Cause he went there. Was that a discussion at the summit too? 
not not a direct discussion. They did have a panel of folks um, from Oregon, Idaho, and Wyoming, I believe, um, kind of talking bears, wolves, and some of the actions that had been taken. And they spoke in vague terms as though not to name groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you were informed on that conversation, you kind of read between the lines and see it was kind of being discussed a little bit. Um, succinctly or uh, discreetly, but uh, they, they, they did not come out and directly address that, but you could definitely tell uh, there was some frustration there, both with commissioner appointments um, with, with rule changes and with uh, the advocacy groups kind of taking the bull by the horns out there and moving towards that mutualistic view away from a consumptive use view. Yeah. That's a conversation I think we're all going to have because I think people realize, you know, it is important to elect federal lawmakers, but I think States, and their elections matter more because you're going to feel the effects of wildlife decisions more intimately and more closely and immediately than you would at the federal level. Because legislation may take six months to a year to however long to be enacted, but a state policy could go into effect as much as under six months, even quicker if it's by you know emergency order or something of that nature. And so that's why I think these agencies have become very susceptible to these kind of lines of attack. Uh, Andrew McKean wrote that great piece in, in Outdoor Life kind of communicating that. And I've been talking about these groups a little bit too, not belligerently, but so people can be aware of like, this is what you have to be up against. And if you're in a state where you have preservationists at the helms of your agencies, it's going to be extremely difficult to convince them unless you somehow influence, but it's hard to influence when these are governor appointments, um, especially if the governor has campaigned on anti-hunting platitudes and platforms. So I think people may start to get more invested. And I don't know if you see this, but is I've heard many people say this. I mean, hunters I've heard are swingy votes. They're kind of indecisive unless they're really animated, depending upon the state, the region, they're not going to come out to vote. I've heard that hunters are apathetic sometimes because they get disillusioned or they may like certain things about one party or candidate, and then they may not like other aspects of it. But is that an issue we have to work with better? I don't see that down here. That may be true in other places. I do not see that at all down here. Um, I think most of the hunters I know, and I know a lot of them, are pretty galvanized politically. Um, I will say that from my state's perspective, and this is simply from Florida perspective, Hunters are often caught between environmental policy and guns. One one teens, tends to be better a little bit on the blue side. Guns tend to obviously be better on the red side. And it, you kind of like dip your toes across the line occasionally as you, as you need to, to get to the other side to make sure we don't just pave over everything because the economy is driving everything. So, so largely down here, um, but so I don't think I see disengagement from hunters or apathy from hunters. I see sometimes a little bit of Stockholm syndrome in that we have to vote one way or the other um, because we don't have a better choice. Yeah. And even in the debate about, you know, picking someone for second amendment versus picking someone for the conservation aspect, I don't want to choose between the two. And we've talked a lot about this before. I think I'm hoping there's, a conversation or an interest. I mean, I try to force this question on Republicans. I interview in Congress all the time. I say, well, will you champion conservation? And I've, I've told you when we've debated about the return act and other threats from the right to sportsmen and women, usually we see most attacks from the left, but we do see some occasionally from our fellow Republicans. And I think there still hasn't been any movement to 
stop that bill. Although I've heard, like I told you, I've heard from different insiders in the incoming, you know, uh, leadership that have said that that bill, the return act will not see the light of day uh, because of just who's leading natural resources. And I've heard the speaker is not interested in that as well. So I am a little bit optimistic there, but it's just, they don't understand some of them. They talk about second amendment and then they are against, you know, keeping Pittman Robertson because they don't understand what Pittman Robertson does and that it's actually very popular among the population. And then you can't claim you're posting with a hunting picture and then simultaneously call for, you know, that law's dissolution or destruction. Um, So I want to be optimistic, but I think it's a matter of just talking to them and explaining to them all across the board what that is. But I want to finally leave you with discussing duck ranching while I still have you, Travis, because I want to I want people to be encouraged. We don't want to always talk about bad stuff and what's overhanging and kind of negative, but we see conservation in action. You've always informed me of what's going on in Florida. And I love the Florida model. I think what you guys are doing are phenomenal. That's why we came and filmed a few episodes down with you guys, with Matt, with Mike, with all the different stakeholders you introduced us to. And you guys have really kind of upped the ante with recruitment, retention, reactivation. And I loved just the different signs you had of people with their first ducks in this duck ranching event that you had at Matt Pierce's ranch and other ranches. So talk about duck ranching and why Florida is trying to help push that. So, so um, really quick hunter, hunter numbers in Florida, we have 180,000 hunters and 21 and a half million people to put that in perspective. If you combine the populations of Montana, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, Colorado, Wyoming, Oregon, and Washington, you would have about 22 million people and you'd have, I forget the number, just under a million hunters. So you'd have way more land, way more hunters and the same number of people versus we're the 22nd largest state. We have the third most people and we have 180,000 hunters, duck hunters. And particularly we sell about 14,000 duck stamps every year. Some of those are collectors. It's hard to kind of reduce down what the actual number is, but let's say it's about 12,000. So um, I'm a big believer that if we don't have a sustainable model to encourage more people to get into hunting, all the private land hunting in the world is not going to do you any good. So, so in other words, um, if I build out this great model for a duck lease or a duck club, if we don't have new duck hunters to continue to grow and enjoy that, um, that's not a sustainable business model. So it's a bad idea. So I partnered with our mutual friend, Matt Pierce, a couple of years ago, and we sat down and said, okay, could we charge less money to make it more affordable to kind of the, I'll say the blue collar guy. And I don't mean that reductive because Florida is full of, you know, builders and welders and and folks that, make, they make pretty good money, um, not necessarily with a college degree. Um, and could we, could we create a model that makes it more affordable for the everyday guy to, to bring his kid out or to bring his, his family out or whatever. And so we did, we're, we're almost half price of the average private land duck hunt in Florida. Uh, we do offer some more expensive options, but we're almost half price. We run hunts on Saturdays. We run them almost like a trespass fee where you pay us to get access to the property. And we've, We've planted millet, we've planted rice, um, we've done it on easement properties where we've done improvements within the guidelines of an RCS, and um, we've done all this to kind of encourage people, not just that they're going to come out there and stack ducks, because I'm a big proponent of this is about stacking memories more than it is about stacking birds, it's about more than ducks. Um, not that I don't want you to kill all the ducks that you can, I obviously I love to kill my six every day that I can, but also we're letting you behind a gate where you're going to see, um, you know, just clouds of roseate spoonbills and formerly endangered wood storks and snail kites. And, you know, the birding is incredible. You're going to see deer wander through your decoys. You might see a panther. We've got uh, panther footprints out all over the ranch. We've had bears out there, pigs, just the wildlife is incredible. And then we're grazing cattle on it. 
And then we're using best practices. And I say we, Matt, is using best practices with his cattle management to improve water quality as water is sheet flowing through this easement into the Everglades. So you can do things like cross fencing. You can do things where you're rotational grazing or, or grazing down uh, invasives or whatever. And so it's like this perfect microcosm and it's not a microcosm. It's several thousand acres of sportsmen, conservation, ranching, all those three woven together. And then just kind of, we're trying to tell that story or show that story to the world of, can we disrupt a little bit of, again, I, I don't mean this as, as mean or, or reductive to the private club model, but can we disrupt this a little bit to where maybe I make a little less, Matt makes a little less, Harry, who helps me run it, makes a little less, but we're able to show more people past that gate. Um, and I'll, I know we're, we're pressed on time, but I'll tell you the story that Matt often tells me, and I, I, I tell this story so much, I should just start stealing it from him outright. But when he was the president of Florida Cattlemen's Association, ag in Florida was being demonized heavily on the water quality front. And so every president of FCA um, kind of picks a theme for the year. Matt's was share your heritage. And so I think you probably have one of the bumper stickers he gave you. It says hashtag share your heritage on it. Mm -hmm. And he was very passionate about a rancher wants to go by the nature of who they are. They want to shut the gate and work their cattle. And they may trade work with the guy next door and work his cattle one day and his their cattle the next day. But generally speaking, it's a very closed off kind of kind of historically a very closed off kind of society. And Matt's idea was we need to open the gate and show people what's behind it. And I think as sportsmen, we tend to be more closed off. I want to go to the woods and shoot my deer. I want to go to the woods and shoot my turkey. I want to go to the lake and shoot my ducks. And I don't want... I want to tell you about it on Instagram, but I don't want to tell you about it where you like know where I did it or anything else. I don't want to open that gate. I don't want to show you exactly what I did. And what we've done is said, we need to disrupt that somehow. And we need to start showing people to steal from Matt outright. We need to share our heritage as well. And Florida has a very rich heritage of hunting as much as fishing. Um, you can read kind of the, the Holy Grail of books for Floridians as, as, as a land remembered. And throughout that book, you know, they, they kill bears, they kill deer, they kill panthers, they kill, I'm not advocating for all that stuff. I'm just saying like, historically it's, it's going on in, in mass numbers here. So why can't we not talk about it anymore? Why can't we, we reclaim some of that? And why can't we share some of that story and maybe normalize that a little bit for the Florida discussion at large? And, and so that's, that's really what we're doing. We did, we made up some, some cool signs. They look like the first day of school and they have hashtag duck ranching on it. No G. Uh, we ask all of our hunters whenever they share on social media to do hashtag duck ranching. Um, by the end of this year, if there's 12,000 duck hunters in Florida, we will run about 1% of them, or I'm sorry, about 10% of them through one of our properties. Um, and we're hoping to grow this. We're hoping to work with other landowners and continue to kind of invest in this model and grow this model. And it leads into other things. A couple of weeks ago, we did an event called Bluegrass and Blue Wings, where we brought in a bluegrass band and cooked breakfast and we charged a little bit more for that. So landowner made a little bit more money that day. Um, maybe not everybody could come to that, but it's, it's still aimed at how can we be creative with getting people to see what's going on behind these properties and using ducks as maybe the vehicle to get them in, but it's not the story that they leave with because when they walk away, they're talking about the steers they saw. They're talking about the cows they saw. They're talking about the bobcats and the, the snail kites and everything else. So that's duck ranching in the uh, two minute, three minute spiel. 
I love it. And I want to come duck ranching with you guys. I haven't been waterfall hunting in four years, almost five years, actually in January. So I loved seeing the event. I think that's a great way to get people. And I wish a system like that would play out in Virginia. We do have it. People are kind of like, oh, I don't want to allow hunters on my property. But I think there could be a way in our more privately managed states here on the East Coast, all across the board, where that type of partnership can be maybe established, because I think there'd be a potential for that too. So I love that. So Travis, quickly, where can everyone connect with you while I still have you? Uh, Social media, at Travis Thompson on Instagram and Twitter. And um, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Thompson. I don't know. I've got a number or something after you. you Willing to everything. Willing to everything, of course. So Travis, thank you so much for coming on for an update. We will have more periodic updates if anything changes or arises in Florida. And I'm glad you had fun in Montana. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Gabs. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.